The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? I've realized I think I forgot to introduce myself. My name's Tim, one of the pastors here. Uh, really good to be with you. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, that passage that Steph just read for us. Acts chapter 17. If you've got your Lent guide and you're following along in that, it's page 32. If you don't have a Lent guide or don't have a Bible, there should be some in the rows. Just kind of grab one of those from the seat backs. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it home, read it, encounter Jesus. Trust that the Holy Spirit would meet you there. Acts 17. Now, just a real quick disclaimer before we jump in. This is going to be a a passage and a concept that if you've been around citizens for a little bit, is not going to be all that new to you. Hopefully, it's a helpful reminder as we kind of remember these things together. But if you're fairly new, then what we're going to talk about today is absolutely crucial to understanding how we think about mission as a church community. And so just kind of give you that that warning as we continue today our series on the practice of mission. So over the course of Lent, we're talking about what does it mean to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to those who don't yet know Jesus. And so before we get to Acts 17, I want to start with just a little bit of an exercise. So if you've got your Lent guide, you're good to go. But if you don't have that, grab like a journal or the notes app on your phone. Get something out that you can write on. So go ahead and do that. I'll give you a minute Get something where you can write down some things. I just want to start with a little bit of an exercise. I'm going to get you to make a list of different people in your life, and I'll kind of navigate you through this. Don't worry. But get something to write with, a phone, a notebook, something like that. And let's start, as when you make a list, let's start by writing down your neighbors. Start by writing down your neighbors. Now, this is not neighbors in the Jesus sense of, like, everyone in need. This is neighbors in, like, the who lives next to you neighborhood, your apartment complex, your townhome, your house, whatever. Who are your neighbors? Write down a handful there. If you know the whole neighborhood, no extra credit. Just the ones closest to you. Second, moving on from that, write down some of your coworkers, your closest coworkers. Closest meaning proximity. They work near you, office or cubicle, close like you're friends with them. Who are some of your coworkers? Third, write down any non-Christian friends or family. Any non-Christian close friends or family. Parents, if your children are not believers, put them on the list. Non-Christian friends or family. Fourth, places you frequent. This could be a gym, a certain coffee shop, a certain grocery store, a certain park, kids' school, what are places you go to frequently? Fifth, what are your hobbies or your interests? What are your hobbies or your interests? If you don't have any hobbies, come talk to me afterward, big hobby guy, can recommend some. What are your hobbies or your interests? And then last one, what are you good at? What are your skills, what are your talents, what are your abilities, what are you good at? All right, set that list aside. We're going to come back to it at the end. We pray for us, and then we'll get into Acts 17. Lord, you are kind, you are near, you are faithful, and you are true, and we cling to all of those promises. Although we are not here of our own accord, we're here because you've drawn us to yourself. You've drawn us to worship of you. You've gotten us out of bed this morning. You've gotten us to this gathering. And so, Lord, we want to believe and trust that you have something to say. So, Lord, would you... Speak to us. Would you do what you've been doing for generations? Take your word, put it into our hearts such that we are changed. 
We need your help. Lord, everything I say that's not of you fall away. Let your truth, your word, your goodness remain. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, Acts 17, a bit of background in the story. If you're not familiar, the book of Acts is basically a detailed account of the growth of the early church. How did the church go from 11 disciples to what it was even now today? And a lot of it, a lot of the book actually follows a new follower of Jesus named Paul, who will go on later to write a bunch of the New Testament. And here, Paul is uh, in, going to have a specific gospel encounter with some folks in the ancient city of Athens, Greece. And so that's what's kind of happening here. Paul's traveling around, planting churches. He finds himself in Athens. And here's what we've got. Acts 17, we'll start in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So Greece at the time is polytheistic. Poly meaning many, theistic meaning the worship of gods, aka Greece worship it, worships a whole bunch of different gods. And part of being polytheistic is that you were very inclusive to adding more gods to your list of gods you worship. So they're like, yeah, add some more, all good here. And so Paul's been in Athens for a few days now preaching about Jesus. And so he's invited to the Areopagus, which is sort of their like central meeting place of idea exchange to basically be like, hey, tell us about this Jesus guy. Let's see if we should add him to the list of gods that we worship. And so Paul says, he gets up in the middle and he starts this speech. I perceive that in every way you were very religious. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. But therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So as Paul starts his case, he begins by pointing out, you guys have an altar to an unknown God. You are so religious, you have like a just-in-case altar. They had this so that if some God they didn't know shows up in the city, they're like, hey, before you smite us, don't worry about it. We had you, we just didn't know your name. This is what he meant. You have this altar to an unknown God, a just-in-case we forgot him or didn't know about him God. And Paul's going to use that as a launching point to start talking about Jesus. Now, just to be clear, Paul is not saying that they're actually worshiping the one true God and they just didn't know it. Rather, what Paul is doing is he's starting with a place of common ground. These people assume there was such a thing as their spiritual realm. There are religious people. And Paul wants to start on this common ground to then build a bridge over to the one true God over to the only true God and what it means to follow him. It's really a masterclass in evangelism. He's like, I'm going to start wherever you are, and I'm going to use that as a conversation bridge builder into talking about Jesus. That's actually what we're going to cover a ton next week. How do you start with some random conversation about football or the weather or work and draw bridges over to talking about Jesus? That's all next week. What I want to focus in on today is what Paul says, starting in verse 24. He says, this God that you don't know about, I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet here's the promise. He is actually not far from each of us. These four verses are crucial 
for understanding the mission of God. If you can get a deep understanding of what Paul is arguing here, and I say this with no exaggeration, if at a core level you can grasp these four verses and what Paul is saying, it will completely change, first, how you live on mission with God, but two, actually how you go about everything you do in your everyday life. If you, uh, I'll even say it this way, if you are bored with the mundanity of Tuesdays, these four verses are going to wake you up to something much larger. So hone in with me. Let's step in here. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to summarize these four verses with one phrase, and then we're going to break it down together. Here's what Paul is saying in these four verses. You are who you are and where you are, so the people around you might come to know God. That's what he's saying in these four verses. You are who you are and where you are, so the people around you might come to know God. That's what we're going to be talking about. Let's break it down together. First, I just want to talk about who you are. You are who you are. Look back at 24 and 25 with me. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What does it mean that God gives to all mankind life and breath? It means very simply and yet wondrously, God created you. Like, just think about that for a minute. You exist as you because God gave you life. You are not, according to the scriptures, just the result of some purely biological process called conception. You are created by God. You have been formed and wired and knit together into you by God, which means you are unique. In some ways, you're not unique at all. Like you're created in the image of God, just like every human on the earth with value and worth and dignity. But in another sense, you are completely unique. You are one of a kind. You are not me and I am not you. And I don't just mean like how you look or your fingerprints, right? Like everybody's got a unique fingerprint. That's cool, I guess. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God's specific design of you in all of the boiling pot that made up you. Your aptitude your skills, your personality, your temperament, your past, your history, your family of origin, your cultural identity. None of that is chance. None of that is happenstance. It's God. God formed you as you. This is how the psalmist writes it in Psalm 139. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So look at what the psalmist says. Before I lived any of the days I lived, they were written for me and I was written for them. As one pastor says that you were made for the days and the days were made for you. So you are you because God has made you you. If you're a human, you're you because God has wired you to be a particular you. But there's another layer to it as well. If you're a Christian, there's this whole other set of you being uniquely you that is now true because of the gospel. So let me explain. When you become a Christian, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. He now dwells in you. Jesus has left. He's gone up. He sent the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of all who trust in Jesus. And that means God has wired you or empowered you with a gift from the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. 
And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So as a human, God has uniquely wired you. And then if you become a Christian, put your faith in Jesus, he also uniquely gifts you. When the Holy Spirit shows up into your life, he does not show up empty-handed. He comes bringing a gift, something like teaching or encouragement or leadership or helping or generosity or faith or service, a gift from the Holy Spirit living inside of you to contribute to the common good of God's people. So you are you, wired and gifted. Tracking so far? Feel good about that? Severe lack of amens for how wonderful God has been to us. That he would uniquely wire us and gift us as he has. But not only are you you, you are also where you are. Let's talk about that second part. So you are who you are, but you are also where you are. Look back at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods or times and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So not only has God wired you, created you, he's also placed you. He's determined the allotted periods, the, the when every single person would live, and the boundaries or the where every single person would live. In other words, you are when you are because of God, and you are where you are because of God. So track with me on what the scriptures argue. You thought you decided to move to Charlotte, but God placed you here. You thought we decided the house we have or the apartment we have, or I decided the townhome I have because it was affordable or because of the school zone or because of the neighborhood, but no, no, no. Scriptures say God placed you there. You thought you decided your career path because of your natural skills or abilities or what paid the most or because it was the only place that would hire you, but God says, no, I, I placed you there. You thought you decided your friend group based on who looked good or who made you laugh or who was helpful for you in times of need, but God says, no, I've, I've placed you. You thought you were picking a gym based on convenience or the classes they offered. But God says, no, I, I placed you there. You thought you were stuck with the daycare or the school your children are in because the other 25 turned you down or had no room. Amen? But God says, no, I've, I've placed you there. You, uniquely wired and gifted you, placed in the particular place you are. And not only that, according to Acts 17, God has placed everyone else who's there, there as well. He's determined all of our allotted times and places, all of our whens and our wheres. Now, chances are, if you're a follower of Jesus, this part is not all that surprising to you. Like at this point, most Christians would agree. Like, yep, I know God has created me. I know he's wired me. He's formed me. I know that I'm unique and awesome. He's got me where he's got me for a reason. The problem is that many folks think the reason why God has them somewhere is a mystery. And here's what it often sounds like. Maybe you've said this, maybe you've heard this in conversation. Someone will say something like, usually when they're having a hard time, I know God has put me in blank for a reason. Like, I know that he's put me in this particular career for a reason. I know that he's put me in this particular city for a reason. And usually it's like, we don't like it, but we're trying to trust the Lord. And we're like, I know there's a reason. I just need to find out the reason. I need eyes to see what is the reason God has put me in this particular position. And in some ways I get it. Like, in some ways, what we're asking is, what's the specific thing he's doing in me? Like, what is he forming in me? What's the character he wants to bring out in me? I get all of that. But in another sense, I don't get it at all, because the reason is very clear in Acts 17. Look at what Paul says. Verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. What's the reason that they should seek God? Perhaps feel their way toward him 
and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Why has God wired you and gifted you and placed you when and where he has placed you? Why are you you where you are in this moment of time? Very simply, for the people around you to find God. It's that simple. That they might meet Jesus, put their faith in him, and have their now and forever changed. God was working behind the scenes of every detail in your life to bring you to this moment, according to Acts 17 and Psalm 139, even before you were born, so that you might be in the particular places you are as the particular you you are for the sake of people coming to know him. The men might seek him and know him, though he is not far from us. And the question I've been asking is, how do we know he's not far from us? And we know he's not far from us because you are there. The reason why you know God is not far from your neighbor is because you are next to your neighbor. The reason why we know God is not far from your coworker is because you are there with your coworker. In other words, you are God's plan to reach your neighbor. I am not God's plan to reach your neighbor. Do you know how I know that? They're not my neighbor. Unless you're my neighbor. You are your neighbor's neighbor. You know how I know I'm not the, the plan for God to reach your coworker? Because I don't work with your coworker. They're your coworker. They're your neighbor, and God has seen fit to weave together all of the, the you-ness and the history and the good and the bad and the ups and the downs and the failures and the successes and the hurts and the pains. He's woven all of that together because that's how desperately desirous he is of reaching your neighbor with the good news of the gospel that he would wire your entire life and being such that the people around you might come to know him. This is how Aaron Coe, one pastor, talks about it. He says, the mission of God requires that believers leverage their lives for his glory. The Great Commission, this charge to go spread the gospel, is not for a select few. It is for the entirety of the church. The movement of God's mission sweeps across every day ordinary lives to draw in business people, soccer moms, grandmothers, neighbors, students, lawyers, teachers, baristas, contractors, white collar, blue collar, or no collar at all. Are you anywhere in that list? Regular people like you and me, filled with his spirit, laying down our lives, denying ourselves for the mission of God and the good of others. This is the invitation. This is God's plan to change the world. This is God's mission plan to save the bukus of people that he wants to save in the city of Charlotte in the days and months and years to come. Thousands of ordinary Christians scattered across our city, living their ordinary everyday lives with a vision to see God is trying to save and he wants to use me, whoever me is, here, wherever he here is for the sake of his glory. That means for us, if we're going to step into that, living into our lives with a few things. And I just want to talk about these things briefly. The first, if we're going to join this everyday, ordinary mission of God, is that we have to step into the where with intentionality. First, part of being an ordinary, everyday missionary is to step into our lives with intentionality, to not let life just simply pass us by on autopilot. You go where you already go, but intentionality means you go with new eyes and new desires ready to be used by God for his mission. Think about the example of Paul, right? He's in the city of Athens, and he's looking around. He's observing what's happening in the culture, ready when he's given opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. God has brought him to this particular place, wired him, gifted him to preach the gospel. 
to proclaim the good news of Jesus to these folks in the city. And the same is true for us. So we don't go through life just sitting back, just trying to make it, just trying to get by, hoping, okay, I'm supposed to share the gospel. I hope somebody asks me, like, how do I inherit eternal life? Spoiler alert for next week. I hope they've talked to me. I hope they build a friendship with me, right? We don't just sit back passively, just trying to survive until Friday, right? Isn't that how life goes? It's like, all right, we know Monday's terrible, so we get through Monday. Tuesday is like, oh, it's just Tuesday. Let's forget about it. Wednesday, hump day, we're almost there, and then we get to the weekend, right? It's the weekend, yes. Intentionality means, no, we're not just living for the weekend. What does God have for me today, here, now? Why am I in the very places I am in? This is how Caesar Kalinowski one missiologist puts it, he says, we need to move from a mindset of additional to intentional. What if God has actually given us this amazing way of seeing life that would make all of life one big, huge opportunity for discipleship and mission? Like everything we're already doing. What if it's already an opportunity, perfect for discipleship and mission? Learning to look at our places and our calendars, not just as the everyday monotony of life, but as God-designed opportunities for the advancement of the gospel. So I'm not just at work to get through work and get a paycheck and go home. I'm here on mission with God. I'm not just at the coffee shop to get my latte and read my book. I'm here on mission with God. I'm not just trying to parent my kids for another day and make it to bedtime. I'm here on mission in my home with God. At the end of the gathering today, we get the privilege of baptizing one of our church family members, John Boyer. You're going to hear some of his story. Let me give you the spoiler alert. I was reading it this morning. John, uh, the Lord got John's attention through a teammate of his on his tennis team as a junior in high school. How ordinary is that? No offense. I think you're wonderful. But how ordinary is that? Right? Some guy he played tennis with who was 16 or 17 was like, I'm not just here to get some exercise or have fun with my friends or because my parents told me I needed to do something after school. I'm here as an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And some tennis teammate of John's invites him around, starts introducing him to Jesus. John becomes a Christian and we get to baptize him today. It's that simple, that common, that ordinary, that wonderful. So how do I intentionally leverage where I am and what I have and who I am for God's mission in the world? Second, it's going to take not just intentionality, but hospitality. It's going to take hospitality. So I'm not only stepping into these places, asking how does God want to use me here to spread the gospel. I'm also learning in these environments to open up my heart and my life to be a non-anxious, non-hurried, welcoming presence what it means on a most basic level. Hospitality is not simply entertaining. To be hospitable, according to the scriptures, is to open up our lives and our hearts to welcome the stranger into a friend. But here's what happens. It's so easy to sprint through life with our head down. Like we are all so incredibly busy and we live such incredibly fast-paced lives. It's one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. I got to go here, run this errand, do this thing, knock out this spreadsheet, finish up this meeting, get food at some point into my body. Our lives are frantic and chaotic and it's so easy for all of us to get wrapped up into what's coming next. Like what do I have to accomplish next? What's next on my to-do list? And this is not just you, this is me. Yesterday, I was working on some stuff outside, uh, trying to get our landscaping to not look awful, and so I had to run to Home Depot, and so I brought Harper along with me, and we're walking into Home Depot to get some mulch, and I look to my left, and here's little sweet Harper, our almost four-year-old, next Sunday, um, and she's like in a half sprint next to me, and I turn to her, and I kind of look at her, I give this face, and she looks at me, and she goes, Daddy, every time I walk with you, I kind of have to run. 
And it was, I don't think, I mean, uh, probably the Holy Spirit was using it to convict me of, man, I move through life so quickly. And I know where it comes from. I got it from my dad. If you ever walk somewhere with my dad, you're always late. He's like 30 minutes ahead of the schedule, and he's always late. And so I walk fast, and I talk fast. You guys are like, we know. And so I look down, and sweet Harper is an instrument of the Holy Spirit reminding me, man, how bulldogging am I right now running into this Home Depot to get what I need and go back to my to-do list? And you know what I'm missing in all those opportunities? The reality of Acts 17, that I am not just at Home Depot to get some mulch and head back to my house. I'm at Home Depot as an ambassador for Jesus. Maybe there's an opportunity. Maybe there's some conversation I can stumble into over both of us going for the same bag of mulch. Maybe it's the worker who's checking me out who Harper got to have a sweet conversation with. Why? Because she's not in a hurry. And she noticed he's got lollipops and I'm gonna do what it takes to get this lollipop. (laughs) But how different is the unrushed soul of a child than our frantic rushing souls of adulthood? Missing every opportunity that the Lord might possibly want to bring my way on a Saturday afternoon at 3.30 p.m. in a Home Depot. And in case you think that's how common it is, that's how common it is. That's what I mean when I say ordinary, that we would slow down and we would be, for lack of a better phrase, interruptible. Interruptible. Like, I'm, I'm shocked when I think about the ministry of Jesus, just how interruptible Jesus was. Like you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's so much ministry Jesus has to do. He's constantly surrounded by crowds and needs, miracles to perform, healings to offer, food to multiply, storms to cease. He's constantly interruptible. The woman who grabs hold of his cloak in the midst of the crowd. The four friends who lower their buddy from the roof in the midst of him teaching. Centurion's daughter who's sick, a little Little children who have nothing to offer him, want to come and learn from him. And certainly, you're important, I'm important, you're busy, I'm busy, but are we more important and busy than King Jesus? Who's constantly interruptible. Third thing it's going to take, intentionality, hospitality. Third, this got added this morning, so if it makes sense, uh, it doesn't make sense, that's why. Uh, It's creativity. I think it's going to take some creativity. It's going to take intentionality. I'm going into these spaces, not just to get this thing done, but looking for opportunities. I'm hospitable. I'm open to being interrupted with conversations, to pray for my coworker, to to care for my neighbor, to interact with my children, whatever the case may be. But third, I think it's going to take creativity because we can come up with a million and one excuses for why our life doesn't fit the common everyday ordinary missionary life of Jesus. We can come up with so many excuses. My apartment is too small. I can't possibly invite people over. My kids are too little. I can't possibly find space in my schedule. My job is too busy in this season. It's just a season. It's been five years, but it's just a season. I only know I'll work with or spend time around Christians. Those are all valid things. Kids that are little take a lot of time. Apartments that are small are hard to host in. Jobs are busy. Some of us, we might only actually know or work with or spend time with Christians, and so this is going to take creativity. Okay, I don't know. I'm working through this list and I have nobody to write down. Great. How are you going to change and shift your schedule such that you can get around some people who don't know Jesus? This is going to take some creativity. Okay, the coworkers that I've been building with, they are all Christians. They all go to church. Okay, how am I going to get around some other coworkers? Well, this is my four-person team. I don't know. It's going to take some creativity. It's a little bit of what you're going to be doing in your community groups this week. So if you're not in a group, get into groups. You can brainstorm creatively. How do I push against all of these excuses that are going to come up to me not living as an ordinary, everyday missionary? Gospel intentionality, hospitality, creativity means leveraging who you are, 
how God has wired you, where he has placed you for his glory, the advancement of the kingdom for the spreading of the gospel. And we, church, have so many beautiful examples of this happening in our church. And I, I just want to share some of these. They, they don't know I'm doing this, and so they're going to feel uncomfortable. I apologize. We have so many beautiful examples, and I just want to name a few of them. I think about people like Sophie Floyd. Like, I've lost count of how many of Sophie's coworkers I've met. I have forgotten more of Sophie's coworkers than I remember. Because she views her job not as just something to go through or this person, not as just someone to work next to or to work with, but as someone to invest in. She works incredibly hard to build relationships, to invite people around community, to help them experience the good news of Jesus. Think about Drew Dunn when he got to Charlotte and God placed him in a particular friend group. How much intentionality he has shown to have hard conversations, ask good questions of his friends and his coworkers and go out of his way to love and to serve them. Think about Brian Morrow. How God put him at Coca-Cola Consolidated and opened up doors to start a men's Bible study. And that takes time out of his work week. There, it would be so much easier for Brian to punch in and punch out and go home. He's got busy life. He's got young kids. He's got a lot going on. But yet he's willing to step in with intentionality to where God has placed him. Or I think about the Myers who leverage their home every month to create space for people to be together, to invite non-Christians to experience church family. And that costs them something. They name it after their dog. It's costly. Hosting something like that on any amount of regular basis is a sacrifice. And certainly those folks aren't perfect. They don't do it perfectly. They probably don't always want to do it. And, and of course, there are so many more stories. I could go across this room and name stories of so many of you how we're leveraging your life for the sake of the gospel with intentionality, with hospitality, with creativity. I could tell story after story, stories I know and stories that I don't even know that I'd love to know. I just want you to see this picture Ordinary, everyday people leveraging who they are and where they are for the mission of God. Here and now in a city like Charlotte. And so the question I want to leave us with is, what about you? What about you? Look back at your list. Started making a list. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your non-Christian family and friends, places you frequent, the hobbies or interests that you enjoy, your skills, your talents. Let me just ask you this question. How could God use you if you took seriously the reality that you are who you are with the skills, talents, hobbies, interests you have, and where you are, the places you go, the people you go there with or around, how could God use you if you took seriously that those are in your life so that people around you might come to know God? That's the question we're going to wrestle this, with this week in your practice guide. You're going to do a practice called a neighboring chart where you're just going to spend time wrestling with who are the people around me in my life you're going to write some things that you know about them. And it's going to be a challenge for all of us to consider real people in our real lives and where they're at and how we can begin to talk to them about Jesus. You're going to work through that on your own and in your community. Believing this reality, is, as Paul says in Acts 17, that he is not far from any of us. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We need you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for Acts 17. Thank you for both his example and his teaching that he leveraged that place you had him in for the good news of the gospel. He stepped forward in intentionality, opening up his heart, opening up his mouth to share the good news of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us see that we are not where we are or who we are by accident or chance, and that the greatest aim in life is not to just grit it and get by through the monotony and boredom. It's not just to survive until the weekend. Lord, I pray you would burden our hearts 
not just for some far off place where people don't know you, but for our everyday interactions with people who don't know you. Lord, our office buildings that are full of people who do not worship Jesus, our neighborhoods that are full of people who do not worship Jesus, our homes, which sometimes are full of people who do not worship Jesus. Burden us, Lord. Would you rid us of our selfishness? Help us to be compassionate. Break our hearts. Put eternity on our minds, Lord. We would have eyes to see a story bigger than just the story we're trying to write for ourselves. We would, in the words of your Son, seek first the kingdom of God. Lord, that even this summer, next fall, next year, in the years to come, we would have stories like the one we're going to celebrate with John, where we're able to get in the pool and see someone baptized as a symbol of what you've done for them in their lives to save them. We'd be able to say, this was because I went to Panera. It's because I talked to my coworker. It's because I asked my neighbor how to pray for him. Or we want those stories, not for the stories, but for your glory, for your fame, for your renown. We love you and we need you. Probably sings in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen.